What's up, everybody? My name is Adam, and I'm the host of the You Know Adam Same podcast, the show that is dedicated on bringing on passionate people, learning about their stories, and delivering value to entrepreneurs. So if that's what you're interested in, go ahead and follow, like, and subscribe. You know what I'm saying? How's it going, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the You Know Adam Same podcast, where you get to know a little bit more about people passions and all things business today sitting across the way is mr dylan john the man the myth the legend big man on campus welcome to the show thank you thank you adam it's uh it's great to be here so appreciate you inviting me to come chat absolutely absolutely so for those that don't know dylan uh you were the president of the student body uh for georgia southern Mm -hmm. You graduated about, what What are we looking at? Maybe... 2016 with a bachelor's, 2018 with my master's. So you were president all during that time? Uh, for the two years, yeah. 2016 Fantastic. to 18. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And then you've kind of gone into the workforce, mm-hmm. started uh, working for various different construction companies. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then now kind of like, you know, t- uh, touching here and there on some entrepreneurship. But That's right. super excited to talk to you. And what, well, professor. Yes, yes. The, later, the latest <laughs> so edition. So many different things you're involved with. So many different things. So uh, before we get there, so tell me a little bit about your experience at Georgia Southern. Oh, absolutely. So um, I actually moved to Georgia Southern in 2013. I started off at small college, Middle Georgia College in Cochrane, Georgia. Uh, and I came in 2016, uh, 2013 specifically for the construction program. Okay. Um, so it was interesting because I was moving from a 3,000-person institution into a 20,000-person institution. And I was very concerned about getting lost in the mix. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's interesting because I think it was that focus uh, that really helped me ascend even to president of student government. I had no intention of it because... No, not at all. No, not, none whatsoever. Okay. Um, I was very big on mediation. Uh, learning to delicately but uh, very precisely uh, walking through the process of um, conflict. Okay. Uh, so I started a mediation club here at Georgia Southern. Okay. Um, so that was my first claim to fame, if you will. Okay. Um, so that's how student government even got to know me was because I would go and ask them for plenty of funding to do a lot of the competitions. Understood. And what does that look like? What does the mediation competition look like? Oh, absolutely. So mediation, it's very interesting. So a lot of people are familiar with mock trials for law. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically you have three formats of conflict resolution. You have litigation, mediation, and arbitration. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, So mediation, we essentially have a mediator who is kind of going through the scripted motions of how to handle a conflict resolution. But in a mediation competition, you also have the advocate and the client. Okay. Uh, So it's very interesting because you have three rounds in a competition where each of the students have to go through the three different hats, if you will. Okay. So you learn how to advocate a position. You learn the emotions of being a client and the rage and anger that you may have to go through. Uh Uh, But most importantly, you learn the role of a mediator in trying to navigate those conversations. Wow. Um, And you're graded on some sort of rubric? Yeah, so typically you'll have professional mediators and lawyers who will be seated in the the judging panel. Okay. Uh, So those three judges will kind of take a look at what your strategies are, how you approach it. in terms of your um, your ability to really kind of circle back and make sure that everything is there are no loose ends mm. when you close out mediation because mediation isn't just about you know being kumbaya yeah, uh, yeah it's also about making sure that people have a um, a valuable outcome at the end so so this is a actually law like competition mm-hmm. so is, so how did you end up over there <laughs> so very interesting so actually when I was at Middle Georgia College. Uh-huh. Um, 
I wanted to get involved. I've always been the person who wants to somehow feel a part of something. Okay. And if I don't feel a part of something, I feel left out. Yeah. So at Middle Georgia College, you know, I had a professor who said, hey, guys, I have a mediation competition this weekend. Uh, who wants to go? Uh-huh. So I looked at him and said, you're asking us, but we have no idea what this is. And uh, he said, it's okay, I'll teach you on the van right there. Uh-huh. Uh, so his name was Dr. Peter Mikhail. Okay, and he took shout three out. Of, yeah, and he, uh, oh, he was a great guy, yeah. great guy in Dublin, Georgia. So he put us in the van, and he was training us in the van. Uh, went for the competition, and I won my first mediation award oh at the competition. Goodness. So, you know, it boosted my feeling. <laughs> I was like, I want to feel a part of something. This is what I need to feel a part yeah. of. Um, so I started captaining the mediation team at Middle Georgia. Uh, what made you so good at it? You know, I think it's um, it's the interesting tapping in to understand a person. And I think uh, that's something we're not really taught in school. Uh, but the magic of understanding someone, how they're feeling, where they're coming from, I think unlocks a lot of potential for meaningful conversation. You're talking about empathy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Empathy and being able to really relate. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes... Um, the, the emotional intelligence component, I think, can be really trained in something like mediation because it's not just like law where you're just spitting out facts. Mm -hmm. In mediation, you're really trying to engage a conversation where you're really trying to understand, okay, where are you coming from? What, where, what, what created this hurt? Sure. Um, there used to be an example I used to use to train my teams all um, about a, a real mediation outcome that was actually trained to me by one of my mediation mentors. It was about a divorce case, right? And the husband and the wife were splitting, uh, splitting up. They owned a dental practice together. So during the, uh, during the mediation, uh, the wife asked, uh, well, how do we split up the dental practice? And the husband decided, well, you know what? I'm not, not, this is not up for conversation. And he walked out. So the skilled mediator as he was, he kind of held on and he, he called the husband and said, hey, you know, I know you kind of tapped some buttons there when she spoke about the practice, but would you like to come back just so that we can try and see whether we can pick back up where we left off? Mm -hmm. So the husband said, I'll come back, but I need to have the first say. So the mediator said, that's fine. Got the wife back to the table as well. They came and then the husband started off and um, he started with an acknowledgement of how important she was in the process of him building the practice. And uh, he said, it's not about just dividing it in half and half. Uh, said, I recognize the value that you put in in us being able to build this dentistry practice. And uh, the wife then said, you know, I just wanted acknowledgement. That's all. So you can keep the full practice. Love it. Yeah. So it's, it's the magic of conversation and getting to where people are really at and mm -hmm. what they're really needing sure. when they're trying to resolve conflict and, and really have some closure and move on. Love that. Um, and I think that was a very good skill set to teach students, um, which I did at Middle Georgia. I was successful in taking a team out to Dubai for a competition. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I came to Georgia Southern, I'd now left that at the back, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't have a baseline for this. Uh -huh. um, so funny story, I, I wanted to start uh, a club here at Georgia Southern, mm -hmm. And the Georgia Southern process to start a club was so cumbersome. I was like, man, I got to wait another semester. So I convinced two friends uh, to chip in some of their money. And we, we rented a van and we went to um, Gainesville, Georgia for a competition. Uh -huh. And we wouldn't even allow them to refer to us as a Georgia Southern Mediation Club because we were still not approved. Okay. So we just called ourselves an interest group from Georgia Southern. Uh-huh. 
And at that first competition, we won seven awards. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and it didn't take a week. Is it because of you? Were um, you the core? No, no, no. They all they all learned. So we, we I had a, I'd started kind of coaching people in mediation by understanding that they did not have to come from a place of, uh, of soul advocacy to make their point. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of mediation competitions, a lot of uh, competitors would come from a place of, I need to win the argument. Mm. And mediation's never about that. Um, and as someone who was not a lawyer or someone who was not pursuing a path of law, uh-huh. it was easy to not have to think in that frame of mind. Understood. So even my teams hardly ever had anyone who was from a law background because we're not a law school. You uh-huh. know? Um, so I used to train them, hey, bring your piece of the puzzle, your knowledge in psychology and sociology, construction, business, whatever it is, bring that piece of the puzzle to the table, and that's where the value really is, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, I remember one of the competitions, it was a national finals. The competition was a real estate argument, right? I had some construction background, right? It was a, it was a useful piece to, uh, to kind of throw in there. Sure. And uh, the funniest of all stories is when you come into the top four teams nationally for the undergraduate level, you get a special invite to participate in the world championship for the law schools. Mm -hmm. So Georgia Southern was one of those four. Mm -hmm. Um, So we traveled to Des Moines, Iowa, Uh with a team of three, no one with law interest. Uh, We had one guy from ROTC, Jonathan Quintine. Uh, We had Tashai Gilman. We had Jessica Shankin and myself. It was a four-person team. Um, and we went up there, and it was interesting because the first day when we entered, everyone knew this was the undergraduate finalists. So they were like, you know, welcome to the world championship. We'll show you how it's done. Mm. Well, three days later, we were actually the winners of the advocacy uh, um, advocacy portion of the competition. Wow! So we, my four person team, uh-huh. beat the lawyers at the law component of the world championship. For so marketing. crazy! Yeah. How uh, I I think you know, I guess what. Is that kind of what put you catapulted, catapulted your position at Georgia Southern? It did. It, it absolutely did. Because I started to make a lot of uh, connections with university administrators mm. who knew about the mediation club success. Uh-huh. Um, the mock mediation club, we grew from five people to almost 40 people. Wow. Yeah. Uh, regional competitions, everyone knew that Georgia Southern was a force to be reckoned with. Because everyone will bring a 10-person team at the most, uh-huh. uh, which may have three teams. Uh-huh. And Georgia Southern would walk in with like 20 people, you know. So, uh-huh. um, And I have pictures of that, which is great. You know, That's you have awesome. Like a four, five, four or five teams participating in a competition. Yeah. Um, and, and all because I think we, we had a great mix being a comprehensive university at Georgia Southern where we aren't siloed in a focus. Sure. You know, everyone has the nursing background, the education background. And that mix of knowledge coming together really does make this a special place. Got you. Um, and I think that that really aided our success. That's awesome. And then so after that, you've kind of like <laughs> won the competition that mm-hmm. in theory you were not in position to, supposed to win. That's right. But you did That's it. That's right. Uh-huh. And then uh, so when did you – was construction always part of the plan? Oh, absolutely. So okay. – <clears throat> My father was a construction, uh, owned a construction company in Sri Lanka. Okay. And um, I was actually sent to the United States to essentially train and learn the trade to come and take over the business there. Okay. Um, And I fell in love with construction technology and how that was evolving. And as a result, um, I thought that there's more opportunity here in the United States than in Sri Lanka. So construction was always part of the plan, but you bring a good point because... 
there was a time, I think it was my second semester here at George Southern, that I had to sit by myself and really map out what my true focus was. Because mm. uh, I was getting that. involved in so many things to feel like I was a part, right? And I was prioritizing other things which I felt could potentially take away from my co-profession. Mm. So, for example, you know, uh, and, and I really commend a lot of our students who get involved in student leadership, you know, RHA and all these different activities. So even I got involved in RHA because I was involved in RHA at uh, Middle Georgia. Mm -hmm. So I was like, natural fit, let me go there. Housing is compensated. So I got involved in it. But a few weeks into it, I noticed that my RHA meetings were competing for my construction management guild meetings. Wow. Uh, which takes me away from FaceTime with uh, contractors who could be potential future employees. Sure. So I had to really sit down and think, okay, you know, am I prioritizing student leadership or am I prioritizing career? Mm. Um, and, and that's a hard place to be because you want to achieve and accomplish on campus because you want to be a part and you're feeling like you can't also give to another place. You know, it's really competing time and interests. Mm -hmm. um, I'm struggling with that even today, you know? but it's 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 a it's a it's an evolving process. How how do you overcome that? Um, so really sitting down and taking time to identify what the priorities are. So I created what I called a focus six: uh, construction, business, mediation, leadership training, diplomacy, and international relations. Mm -hmm. So and it was almost in that order. Mm -hmm. So unless the activity or engagement had something to do with those six. I would not take it. Wow. Why six? Um, I don't know why. That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I kind of, um, well, I think I know why. I, I divided into three things. The first was what is my core career interest or pursuit? Mm. So that was construction and business, right? Then it was the second two was what am I good at? Uh, and that was mediation and leadership training, right? And then the other two uh, was uh, what do I what do I dream about, you know? Mm. What is that thing that kind of gets me so excited, but nobody can really draw a line to say, yeah, Dylan is about that, mm. right? And uh, diplomacy and international relations were in that realm. So yeah. you can see correlations of, yeah, mediation made sure that I was involved with the mediation club, construction, construction, uh, management guild, and so on. Uh, RHA went out the door because it wasn't part of the six, sure. right? Um, and then, of course, later on, student government as diplomacy and international relations. So a lot of the steps I started taking at Georgia Southern uh, was correlated to that baseline of the six. Yeah. Um, at one point, I was involved with 16 different organizations. I had 12. 16? Mm -hmm. 16 student organizations. 16 student organizations while holding 12 officer positions. Wow. And it was all rooted in the baseline of these are my core priorities and this is how I think it's going to get me there. Mm -hmm. um, I also had to do a lot of self-searching on uh, being confident to trust others. Mm. Uh, and I really used this uh, environment as almost a sandbox to really practice that skill because many of us, we don't trust others. I mean, you, you even do a school group project, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's a little difficult to trust someone else with your grade. That's right. Right? Um, but I really learned to trust others, but not only trust others, give others ownership of what you are trusting them with. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's easy to say, hey, Adam, I trust you with X, Y, and Z. But then I say, hey, man, I trust you with this, but I really believe you are the person to do X, Y, and Z because of, yeah. you know. And when that person feels the ownership 
uh, all of a sudden it unlocks a lot more potential because now they feel like not only does this person trust me, dude, there's a why behind the trust, sure. right? And there's almost a need to ensure that you meet that uh, that objective. So. Well, what you're really talking about is leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to lead, being able to trust your team. That's right. Um, what in your past, mm-hmm. before you got to this point, because mm-hmm. obviously when you came came to Georgia Southern, you decided to take over all the clubs. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> what kind of, you know, in your previous, like, younger years gave you that ability, would you say? It's very, um, so absolutely, I think, observing my father and my mother. Mm. You know, my my mom was a very, very personable person, and my father was very operationally efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, so watching both of them growing up run a business together, you know, my father and mother were like a magical team. Yeah. My ma- my mother will go and, you know, wine and dine clients, and my father will close the, close the deal. Close the deal. Yeah, yeah let's know, go. So they have that, like, yeah, uh-huh. they have that little... Um, uh, and honestly, when my mom passed, I watched my father really struggle to try and get that the giant that back, uh-huh. you know. But uh, he's he's done well to try and manage it. But there were times that actually he had to start coaching me to kind of fill it. Sure. So, so I started you got working. Put into, so you started taking that role. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah. So wow. I started, How old were you? Uh, I was eighteen when my mom pa- was seventeen when my mom passed. Mm. But I did start taking positions of selling and doing things like going and uh, meeting people for business development and bringing them back to the uh, the store uh, the storeroom or whatever and then um, or the showroom sorry and my father would kind of sell the deal yeah uh, so I I watched him sell the deal and I was all about being upfront with the relationships mm. so I kind of learned that skill set of going after something follow up you know. Um, also watching someone close the deal and kind of be trained in it. Sure. So I think that's where I really, I mean, I was selling breadboards for my father's company at the age of 13. Bread so they, what? Breadboards. Uh-huh. Yeah, breadboard, so, okay. Mm-hmm, yeah, so at the age of 13, we'd go for like these exhibitions where we'd sell all these uh, uh-huh. cabinets. Merch- uh-huh. Yeah, and um, instead of, so my father would make tables and chairs and all these things at his factory, and off the waste material, uh-huh. they'll make breadboards. Uh-huh. Like um, it was like a dollar a piece if you convert it in U.S. dollars, you know. So he would keep me on the side of the the exhibition, um, the the stall, uh, with like you know fifty boards, and my job was to to look all cute and thirteen and you know sell these to people. So uh-huh. uh, the families that come check the cabinets, you know, I'd try to sell them to <laughs> from that young of age. Yeah, mm-hmm. that had that had to have massive impact because like I mean you're you're learning so many different skills just like by doing that, right? Yeah, and it's becoming internalized. At that very like kind of like being exposed to that like, right. since day one. Yeah, so no, I absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So tell me, uh, give me some words of advice for maybe like people that are you know uh, in college right now. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously we can't expect all to have <coughs> you know illustrious uh, careers such as you. But you know, how what type of advice would you give them? So I think um, I think if you only go to class and do the check boxes in your coursework. I think you've lost the value in college. Mm. So I think involvement is not, uh, I don't think it's an option. Mm. I think it's mandatory uh, for success. Um, Yes, we praise and gloat academic accomplishment. uh, But one of my mentors once taught me that network is your net worth, Mm. right? And um, I think I, I carry that true even today because 
my network really allows me to do a lot of things that I may not be able to directly do, mm-hmm. right? And um, I try to be very diligent about, you know, keeping in touch with my network. So, you know, as soon as I pa- uh, passed the sausage shrimp, I was like, let, hey. me, let me shoot a call <laughs> yeah. right you. So, um, so I think expanding your network through organizations is important. And the reason I say that is, Because if you only go to class and say, okay, this is networking, you're not wrong. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, your classes are very, very restricted to your major more often than not, mm-hmm. right? Especially in those last two years of college. So you have essentially reduced the size of your network just because of your affiliation, mm-hmm. right? I, on the other hand, kind of broke out my interest to, okay, what do I want to do career-wise? So that was my that was my class network, if you will, sure. right? But then what am I good at? Mediation and leadership training. So let me get involved with some things that do that. Mm-hmm. Diplomacy and international relations, so student government, political science students. So all of a sudden now you're building um, a, a lot more of a branched out network mm-hmm. just because you're involved with people who think different. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest loss that people have is that they don't have a network that thinks different to them. Uh, I think that's uh, that's one of the reasons we have so much political strife or so many disagreements in general sure. is because people don't can't connect and be okay with having a different opinion. Yeah, you know? I, I agree uh, with yeah. you on that. Yeah. So uh, it, it's okay to have a different opinion. I mean, champion your opinion. Yes. I, I cheer you on to champion your opinion because yeah. that means you have vetted your opinion, you believe in it, and I and I strongly support that. Mm-hmm. But if it is something where we're like, oh, well, we're not going to talk about it because, you know, so all of a sudden you've lost the magic of it. And That's I right. think, um, like I said, I always treated Georgia Southern and States, bro, like a sandbox where I could play in and figure it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of those attitudes of, you know, I, I also was very staunch on some of my opinions. Sure. But nonetheless, it, it was a, a place to practice with listening to someone else's. Love that. Love um, that. So, yeah. So you got done with school. Mm-hmm. You're, you finished up. Um, had an illustrious career. <laughs> and then uh, what did you do after that? So um, I joined a construction company in Macon mm-hmm. uh, as an assistant project manager. But I will say something if um, if I'm allowed to do so. So I'm, of course. of course, an international student. So I came from Sri Lanka, and it's amazing how many people would not realize what our international students go through in order to secure employment. So, um, in fact, I remember talking to higher-level administrators at Georgia Southern and said, you're, Dylan, you're president of student government. Like, you're very well-networked. Finding a job should be easy, easy you know. Um, and to a great extent for someone who is not an international student, probably, right? But we have a large international student population here uh, at Georgia Southern. And uh, it was interesting because I was interviewed by 28 companies wow. in six different states, before I got my first job offer. Wow. Right. And do you think that if you were not an international student, that that would have been different? Absolutely. Mm. Because even today, especially, and it's dependent on industry as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people in the construction industry are intimidated by the immigration process. Mm. And really and truly, there's nothing to be intimidated about. Mm-hmm. Because um, what you need to understand is, yes, there is an investment, but any investor knows that If you put money into something, then you also expect some work or sure. some outcome from it. Sure. So uh, when I joined my employer, right, I mean, they didn't have to tell me. Of course, they um, they provided me the opportunity. I'm very, very thankful to them, uh, the folks at Piedmont Construction. They're the ones mm-hmm. who gave me the first break. Um, but I think the more important aspect of it is the fact that they were investing in something. I recognize that. 
So I wanted to make sure that I had some output that whenever my time would end with them, that they would at least have something to show for, yeah, he worked for this piece. That's right. So um, I actually started developing the construction technology processes as a result mm -hmm. uh, to try and uh, build like a, a BIM execution plan mandate or how they would approach it, what type of projects to use it on. So I developed a document with detailed instructions and so on. Um, and to me, that was like, okay, instead of paying a consultant, yeah, you know, you're, you're paying for my, my residency. That's right. But I'm going to give you this output That's in right. addition to my job of being an assistant project manager. Mm -hmm. So I think um, as long as companies kind of get that understanding, more often than not, they're like, oh, it's so uncertain. It's so... Cost prohibitive, and yes, that's all real facts. Sure. Right, but I think if you kind of tailor it where, okay, we are sponsoring you on this, so we have these expectations, I don't think there's anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the technology. <coughs> were you were you into construction technology even at Georgia Southern? So I was. Uh, it was very interesting. So actually, our current um, interim department chair, Dr. Marcel Magia, he, um, he was teaching me this BIM for construction management course. And he had an assignment uh, to come up with the BIM implementation plan. What's BIM? Okay, so no, I'm like, yeah, about it. yeah. So BIM is building information modeling. Okay. So if someone is familiar with um, a 2D CAD process or sure. computer aided design, which is very typical in the engineering industry, that's where you get your 2D prints. So BIM kind of um, enhances that, where there's a lot more information embedded in those lines and strokes that you see, because not only is it now coming into a 3D model, okay. but those 3D models also has other data embedded in it. Sure. So quantities or cost, wow. or, you know, now you can also take that dimension and stretch it to, well, if it takes a thousand brick, how long is it going to late? Sure. So schedule now gets added. Okay. So now we're adding different dimensions and is that just all, at one stroke of a line. And is that all happening automatically? <clears throat> Like in terms of like the, the technology itself, is that what's happening? So there are tools that do it. Okay. Uh, but I think a lot of it is still in, a lot of it in, is in its infancy. And um, a lot of it is also, I think, in its, uh, in its dreamy enhancement that's not realistic. Sure. So we have to kind of come somewhere in the middle. And I think in industry, we're working towards that. Right, because at the end of the day, contracts are still signed in 2D, mm -hmm. right? And as long as the contracts are signed in 2D, your everything else legally is governed in two, two dimensions, D. right? Uh -huh. So making that evolution is going to take a lot of change. Mm -hmm. So I think technology is outpacing the industry. Wow. Uh, which is why I like to advocate construction technology um, in every sphere that I possibly can because I don't necessarily do BIM, so I don't model the buildings. Sure. That's not my skill set. I'm sure. a project manager. Sure. Right? So, and in managing projects, I understand that it's important to leverage the tools at your disposal. Sure. Technology being one of them. Yeah. Right? So, I think it's important for more people in the industry to embrace that there is a technology uh, shift and how do we, A, make that somewhat palatable but B, when it's not palatable, how do we get people on board? Sure. Right? Um, because just because it's not palatable does not mean we don't chase after it. Sure. Right? There is discomfort in the process. Well, construction is a very old industry, mm -hmm. oh, right? Absolutely. Like uh, in terms of kind of like how, how long it's been there. So I think it has 
a space, a gap in there where mm-hmm. it has time to catch up. Yes. And technology is moving so quickly. It's it's changed it's changed everything, yeah. right? And so I think maybe one of the areas where it's um, catching up right now is construction. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is on the horizon, right? What's the what's the latest and greatest for you know construction technology? So in construction technology, we're seeing a lot of uh, drone and robotics usage. Mm. I think that's kind of the sphere we've entered and that's being embraced. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what do you mean? Like come out, take pictures, and then come so go yeah. back in? So uh, <laughs> we, 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 interestingly, yeah, to an extent, you know, we have... Um, so at Winter Construction, which is where I work now, okay. great people, wonderful team, absolutely love it. Uh, Winter Construction, I would say, has probably one of the most prominent, most efficient BIM teams that I've ever dealt with. Wow. So they have some great like survey tools and equipments, uh, drones, um, which they actually take to job sites. They fly the drones. So one thing is progress evaluation. So these drones can evaluate progress. Um, and now, you know, as we go along, of course, sometimes it's just picture-to-picture comparison. Sure. But there are additional tools coming into the into play where they will compare the pictures and ac- actually give you outputs of what has been accomplished from your previous picture. Wow. Right? Um, so there are a couple of tools out there that does that. Uh, again, some of it in its infancy because they won't do every single material. Some of them will only do your drywall and your flooring tile laying or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's starting very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something in the in the picture-to-picture comparison just to kind of assess completion rates, right? Or uh, what uh, to what level have you completed your project and kind of aids in billing and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing is we're actually seeing robotic uh, labor, which I think is a little... Is a little um, intense? It is a little intense, but I also think it's a little too early to really... See the benefit? Yeah, because you're you're implementing expensive technologies on a job site, which is very difficult for people to take on, right? Mm. Uh, but I see it coming, for sure. Absolutely, you know? I think Boston Dynamics... Yeah, I, yeah. See, I see them all the time, <laughs> with like, you know, the, the different... Um, the dog yeah, uh, or yeah. whatever. Uh, yeah, and, and Boston Dynamics has spot the dog who takes the pictures. Yeah. There's a lot of nice YouTube videos where you can actually see uh, Spot going and taking pictures and... They'll do the full premeditated circle. And and on some of the big job sites. It makes sense. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Because you're looking at a, I'm not exactly sure how much a robotic dog costs nowadays. But uh, I mean, you think about paying for a project engineer uh, who on a large airport project or large commercial space goes and takes pictures of every room. And instead, now you have a robot doing it, right? And save, save the time. And that person is just – so he can take on potentially more projects. Because that is correct, mm. yeah. So, And not only that, it's very um, – I think one of the dangers is uh, putting our young professionals in construction in silos. Mm. Because if they come and they learn only one role and one task, right, then that becomes their experience. Yeah. Right? So three, four years go by on a large project like that. A majority of their time has been spent taking pictures. Yeah. Right? You've got a photographer, yeah, you know, and uh, nothing wrong with the photographer, but I also need that person to have construction skills. Sure, right, sure. And uh, construction skills comes in stitching the information together, really processing what happens, uh, understanding how things tie in together. Wow. Right? Uh, and I think that piece of the puzzle is lost on many um, if they're only in silos. Mm. Uh, and I think some companies do extremely well at, at training their folks. Um, I know Winter does a slap bang job. I mean, we, we shout out to Winter because you know I, I, I do work winter, for them. Uh, yeah, yeah, but 
Um, but we we really kind of have an environment where our project engineers kind of feed off of each other's knowledge levels. Uh, there are good coaching and training mechanisms where they learn all the processes. Mm-hmm. So they're really training themselves to be great in-demand construction professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another issue with being a part of a large entity is that you may kind of get lost in the mix sure. if your role becomes a silo. So I even challenge people in college who are looking for those internships, or, you know, those opportunities, that when they do get into those roles, that they also ask for more. Sure. Uh, that they ask to be engaged in other activities that are different to a singular role because also you don't get what you don't ask for. Sure. You know, uh, so that's that's an important part of it as well. That's right. So for, for, for this technology, is it accessible to most construction organizations? So uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, because some companies can pretty much invest in it and then leverage it for all their projects mm-hmm. and expense it. More often than not, a lot of the technology at the moment is reviewed or viewed as an overhead, mm. right? And that's how it's treated. I understand that, uh, but my technology mindset is that we need to go to a place where these projects are expensed across multiple projects and we naturally begin to use it as part of our workflows. In some cases, it really doesn't make sense to use it, Mm. so I get why companies don't do it. But I think that there needs to be some form of a rubric that we develop that says, okay, this type of company, uh, this type of project, it's a, it's a no-brainer. We're going to use it anyway. Sure. Right? Because right now as an overhead, it only gets used on projects where Hits a, a customer size. wants. Yeah, a customer wants it mm-hmm. or there's a very, very specific, you know, the customer's willing to pay for it. So you kind of get stuck in this overhead space. Sure. Right? Whereas, I mean, we all use laptops today. You aren't going to go tell a customer saying, hey, for me to use a laptop on this project, I'm going to charge you another hundred bucks, you know? <laughs> but for that to happen, I think that the technology has to become either very accessible mm-hmm. or it has to solve a need. Yeah. Because right now that's the challenge, right? Because in construction, they've been doing this without it for this long, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Like yeah. they already are set in their ways, especially mm-hmm. with these some of these older, like, you know, uh, construction companies. So how how does that happen? How do you trigger them? And I think that's some of the work that yeah. you're working on right now. Absolutely. Of like, how do you make it so that they see value in that? So very, very good question. So I think the biggest challenge is, um, and this goes back to what I said a minute ago, it's also being able to collect data in a certain way, interpret data, and really show that return on investment. Mm. I don't think that any contractor can give you a straight answer what the return on investment of using uh, some of the tech tools are, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there's, a, there's a very real reason for that. Sure. And that's because when we leverage um, different construction technologies, we also don't, it, it'll be added time and money to collect and analyze the data that you are asking me to show you that return on investment, just because it's such a vast conversation, sure, right? It's not Huge. like, yeah, it's not like uh, giving you a laptop and saying, oh, you can type an email faster now, right? You can clearly see the difference between sending registered post and an email, right? Sure. That's, that, that's cut and dry. Sure. Right? Uh, but when it comes to construction technology, the amount of data points that you have to assess and analyze mm-hmm. just becomes a significant. So it seems like it's more work. It, it is, correct. And now if you do that, you bring in young professionals we're going back into the conversation of putting someone in a silo yeah. where now it's just their job to data analyze, sure. right? Now, 
Having said that, doesn't hurt to expand our recruitment pool to data analysts. Yeah. Right. And I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think we have a data analyst at Winter who mm-hmm. helps analyze some of this data. That's cool. Right. Because you need to understand what this data is and how it really relates to what we do on a day to day. If not, the technology is just something cool. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of my students this semester on uh, on the discussion post uh, that I had to talk about BIM. I uh, had noted saying BIM has a 100% increase in productivity. Yeah. Uh, that's a very broad statement. Yeah. So I, I commented back it's and brave, said, huh? yeah, I said, commented <laughs> back and said, where did you find this statistic? Uh-huh. Right? Uh, because I'm sure in some cases it might have a 100% productivity, but it's not that easy a science mm-hmm. in construction tech um, because construction tech is just so vast and it also takes the right mix of tools but also very important, the right mix of people. Mm. Um, you know, when I did my thesis, my thesis mentor, Dr. Chen, she developed a formula for assessing building information modeling maturity. And uh, it's B-I-M-M, BIM with uh-huh. an M, right? Uh-huh. Uh, building information modeling maturity. She had these different elements that would assess how mature a company's leveraging of BIM is. Mm. So when I did my thesis here at Georgia Southern, I built on that data and essentially expanded the conversation to using BIM for construction performance. So, you know, we talk about KPIs all the time sure. in business, right? Key performance indicators. So I created a, um, a rubric for construction key performance indicators, right? And um, they're essentially uh, a baseline of different goals Cost goals, schedule goals, quality goals, all these different items, uh, safety assessments, things like that. And then you have, okay, how does BIM affect the outcome of each of these? Mm -hmm. Because in construction business, that's how we assess whether we're doing well in business or not. Sure. So if BIM or any construction tech is not feeding a positive indicator on any of those, then I would suggest don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it or don't do it yet, Mm -hmm. right? Or figure out how it would impact, right? So... I think as construction tech develops, there is a lot of automation that's taking place where there are sensors and other things that can collect the data Mm -hmm. that we are so hesitant to allocate human resources to do it. Mm. So there will be a point in time where we can tap on the automation resource to feed the data so that we're not wasting time with people. Instead, collect that data to feed some form of a performance criteria. So I think that's where we need to be headed. Yeah. We are living in wild, wild times. Oh, yeah. We absolutely are. (gasps) So you are currently a professor as well. Correct. Congratulations on that. Thank you. What's on the horizon for you? What's what's the future look like? Absolutely. So um, I honestly love my work with Winter Construction. Uh, I... Once I left my previous contractor, um, I was considering what my options are. So at the time, I had started a business mm-hmm. called VDC Execute. Uh, the whole objective of the business was to try and help construction companies identify lapses in construction tech and figure out how we can kind of connect the dots. Wow. Um, so as a result, I network with a bunch of construction tech people um, and have a great network in that space. So I, I hope to kind of expand my professional dialogue in those spaces. But I do not want to get siloed in construction tech either, mm. you know, uh, because I really, truly believe that construction technology is a tool mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the core of our business. Mm-hmm. The core of our business is building projects. Yeah. Right? The customer comes and says, build a project. It doesn't matter how much tech I sell them on. <laughs> right? It's like, can you can you build the job? Yeah. Right? Uh, can you build it within budget? Yeah. Can you build it on time? That's right. right. And um, so I really love my work as a project manager. So if I have the blessed opportunity to be, be with Winter Construction, I think I'll have a very long stint with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as, as time kind of emerges, I've also learned that, you know, you, sometimes opportunities need to kind of shift and you need to kind of make a, make a change. Um, I hope that does not become my story in the next couple of years, but in the event something does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the construction technology consultancy space sure. um, is something that may continue to grow. But again, I will always wear the construction project manager's hat, Love even that. in that lens. Love that. Because um, I think um, I think that's where it goes wrong. And even now in industry, when I go and tell people, hey, you know, I, I have an interest in construction technology, they always think I'm a BIM guy. Yeah. Little do they know that I don't model <laughs> anything. I don't, yeah, I, don't, I don't draft anything, you know, um, because that's that's not my skill set. Sure. You know? and, and I know that that's not my skill set. My, my skill set is stitching the process of how do we leverage this for a better outcome, right? Mm-hmm. And I rely heavily on people who know BIM mm. to kind of help me gain that. Yeah. But as a project manager, I know that I need to be pushing to ask so that I can leverage. That's right. Because if not, I'm waiting for someone to tell how I can do something better. I think it's my job to ask. Mm. And um, I think in the in the construction technology realm in general, uh, I remember when I was recently interviewing before I joined Winter, uh, people would ask me, well, what do you like? So I said, well, you know, when I tell this story, people get confused. So let me try and break this down to the typical American family. And I would say, uh, consider that my role as a project manager is that of my uh, responsibility towards my wife. Okay. Right. And construction technology is like my responsibility towards my kid. Okay. Right. Uh, you can't tell me to choose either or. Uh-huh. Right. Because I am loyal to my wife, uh-huh. but I'm extremely hopeful for my kid. Sure. Right? Sure. So just the same way, I'm extremely ro- loyal to the role of construction project management, mm. but I'm extremely hopeful for construction tech. That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. How do people get connected with you? What's the best way to kind of like get in contact? Yeah. So uh, emails are great. I'm I'm a I'm a great uh, great email correspondent. Sometimes I talk too much on email. Uh, so VDC execute with the letter X. So there's no E in front. VDC X E C U T E mm-hmm. at gmail.com if they want to email and chat. Um, I usually try and prompt a phone call shortly after so we can just kind of get to know people. Uh, like I said, I love networking. That's right. Um, I am on Instagram. Okay. Uh, so that's a good way to kind of connect with and network with me as well at, at Dylan John SL. Uh-huh. Uh, SL standing for Sri Lanka. Uh-huh. Uh, love that. Yep. So so those those are, I think, two, two key platforms, email and social media for uh, Instagram. Uh, but I am also very active on LinkedIn. Yes. So if you just look for Dylan John uh, Construction, you'll probably find me. I'm the guy with the construction hat, uh, but yeah, I, I um, that's that's probably the best uh, ways to to reach out to me. Awesome. Well, Dylan, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. You know, I think it's so inspiring what what you've been able to do. Uh, I had no idea about the Mediation Club. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna kind of like you know dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. But I think it's a phenomenal journey that you've had so far and I think more importantly I'm so excited to see everything that you plan on accomplishing in the future oh man thank you very much so I appreciate it and then uh, that's a wrap yeah no appreciate it thanks Adam cool alright thanks <laughs>